And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, Rebecca. How are you? Yes, I'm good this morning. Yes, and it's the election day. And we are back together. Yeah, yeah. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> you know what I did this morning besides... Uh, uh, getting things prepared for, you know, yes. this. Um, I actually went through the Senate ticket, you know, the Senate, oh, yes. what's on the Senate, because I wanted to make sure I had a sort of a clear understanding. Do you mean below the line or? Oh, yeah, just, just to understand what was, uh, and I was categorising the worst. And mm. the, you know, I had two, I had two places that I was pa- play, placing different parties. One was called Worst and the other one was Okay. And I ended up with, uh, in the worst and the okay sections, a gap between unbelievable, right? Yeah. And did you know that there's 29 different groups that are putting their hands up for the Senate? No wonder it's a dog fight. Yeah. And that uh, all those preferences are the thing that's most important. Yes. Well, I, I went and did a pre-poll um, vote, so I saw... Yeah, like it's how many names were under the like below the line, and I shopping. just see oh, it's, a, it's like a, good on those people who still want to do that vote below the line. No, but, but the thing about <laughs> although it is, you is, don't have to put numbers in every single box anymore. But but the thing about it is, is that you'd have to know where all their preferences yeah. and stuff are going. You'd have yeah. to do masses of research to know which ones are um, just. Uh, covers for mm. uh, another kind of entree into some other kind of power yeah. elite. And what I discovered was in my worst pile were nine. out of There's 29 yeah. groups. There's nine in my absolute worst. Yeah. And it was hard to work out which was the worst. And yes. then there were 13 altogether. Hmm? Is Th- someone – someone's at the door. Oh, no. Are we waiting for someone? No, no, no. no. Thir- 13, 13 altogether in the worst pile out of 29. Anyway, by the by. 13 in on. the worst pile? Yeah. Oh, I thought there were, you said there were nine. No, no, there's nine in the absolute oh, worst pile. Oh, God. Okay. And then there's 13 in the worst pile altogether, you know, okay. like a vaguely representing something that yes. you mightn't find completely mm. unreal and yep, awful. Yep. But anyway, by the by. That's for everybody to think about. Anyway, it's quite shocking to me. Ah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. There's a reminder. We have to remind you that uh, Radiothon's coming up. Yes. And uh, we'll be at Radiothon runs from the 3rd to the 16th of June and we'll be running our program on the 15th. Yep. So uh, that should be fun. So if you want to continue to get the program going, then don't forget to uh, throw a bit of cash our way. We might even do... We might even um, have uh, some, prizes or something. something. We might even <laughs> let you online. You, you you might be able to ring us up and talk oh, to yes, us and yeah. uh, and that sort of thing, which might be fun. Uh, but anyway, 
Uh, we've got things to talk about today, haven't we? Uh, first up, we're going to uh, do a piece um, about refugees because, of course, this is one of those days that people should probably think about, get a, a moral compass because we're doing voting, if that's what you do. And uh, I went to the Marxist conference, so did you, Rebecca. Yeah. And the, I went to one of the sessions that did a live cross to Manus Island and spoke to Baruz Burkani. And you'll remember that there'd just been this big stout in federal parliament over allowing medical assistance and mm. bringing um, people from Manus Island to the mainland for medical assistance. By the time we were speaking to uh, Baruz Burkani, uh, only three people had been brought across and, in fact, he was reporting that uh, nothing really had changed for people on the ground. Anyway, this is a piece about uh, reflecting on his experience and it was a lived experience because this was a live cross, remember, and it finishes up with a, an impassioned speech by Liam Ward, one of the uh, organisers of Marxist Conference. And then we will you'll take us to the steps of uh, State Library of Victoria, but first up... Let's hear from Baru. Uh, uh, I think my story is uh, uh, interesting because I didn't want to live in a dictatorship system, but I came to Australia and they put me in jail for six years. Even in Iran, as a the dictatorship system, when they want to put you in jail, they send you to court and 10 years or 20 years or 15 years. But we are here and they have kept us as a political hostages for years uh, without, uh, you know, court, uh, court order or without uh, trade without, uh, yeah, nothing, and we committed no crime. And I think it is a very modern and complicated system, dictatorship system. And uh, but Australian government has been successful to justify the public opinion. The Australian government has been successful to keep us here for six years. And still, uh, a large part of Australian society accepts this. And uh, they are following uh, what the government is doing. And I think it is a horrible thing. And we should think about this, that how in a system, a country like Australia, a government that claims that care about uh, human rights is doing this. And uh, unfortunately, you know, it's hard for me to say this. For years, I was trying to defeat this system. I was trying to, through my articles or, or my work, I um, were struggling and fighting uh, to send out information and explain and expose this system because I uh, was hopeful that people in Australia uh, one day break this uh, policy, but unfortunately after six years still we are here and I have to say that the history will make judge and history will uh, blame uh, this current generation and it is a reality 
but unfortunately uh, for the refugees and Manus and Naru who have lost many things on their personal lives over the past six years, it's not important how and how history judge. History is not important for the refugees. What is important for the refugees, for innocent people in Manus and Naru, is to get freedom. Um, you know that they're not they're not offshore processing camps. Let's be blunt about this. We, we have examples from history. We know what these things are called. If you have camps that you put people into, not because of what they've done, but because of who they are, and if you put them there to serve your political agenda, and if you keep them there year after year, concentration camps. And to hear people from inside over the years, again and again, hearing Beirut's uh, and the courage, the refusal to be broken, to be dehumanised. Uh, you know, time and again, Beirut's and the others have shown us what it means to find dignity in resistance, to find humanity in resistance. And they're resisting despite... Uh, you know, all of the, you know, against all the odds, despite the seemingly endless cruelty and despite the totally bipartisan commitment to that cruelty that's shared by both major parties. And in their resistance, the refugees on Manus and the Rue have given hope to all of us. As long as they can resist, as long as they can find the will to get up and stand up in the midst of all that, then it's the least we can do to bloody well stand up alongside them proudly and play our part in that struggle. And that's why the hope that they give us matters. But we also have to be realistic. When we look at the current political landscape on this question, particularly right now in the lead up to the election, I think sometimes the hope or the idea of hope can be a bit intoxicating. These glimmers of hope that aren't even real can loom large. They can loom as something that even the most hardened political realists, people who have been campaigning for refugee rights for 20 years, 30 years, and who should know better and to be sucked in by illusions uh, can sometimes want to grab on to these uh, false glimmers of hope as if somehow just convincing yourself that if you hold on to them tightly enough they become real, uh, that that um, you know, is somehow what we have to do. And I'm thinking here in particular of two staunch defenders of refugees, Richard Franklin and David Mann, who, who spoke last week in Melbourne at the Palm Sunday rally, and both of them uh, said variations of the same thing, that we're about to win. Now, you can understand why they say this, and you can understand why they want to say this, and why they want to believe it. Uh, the idea is tempting. It can seem that surely nobody is as bad as Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton. And that surely, once we get rid of them, the situation will be better. And more than that, that surely, you know, whoever replaces Peter Dutton and Scott Morrison will usher in a new era of treating refugees humanely. And now you see why I say it's a total illusion. We have to be honest and we have to make a sober assessment of things if we're to gird ourselves for the fight ahead. Because the hard truth is that even after all these years, even after all these decades, we are still a million miles from our end goal. Our goal, remember, is to abolish the entire system of concentration camps, of, of temporary second-class visas and all the rest of it. All of these vile instruments of torture and cruelty that successive Australian governments have built over the decades. 
They're so coldly fine-tuned. We want to tear them all down and in their place erect a new way of seeing refugees, a new way of welcoming refugees, a new way of helping refugees, to offer them the safety and the peace and the assistance that they need, and to finally, at long last, to get away, to excise uh, the, the, the vicious, corrosive, destructive politics of anti-refugee racism that have been such a cancer in the society for many decades, and that continue to fester. And that is our goal, and nothing short of that. But when we look honestly at the ground that we stand on, when we look at the roads that our weary feet march on, we have to admit a few hard truths, a few grim realities. Today there are over 915 people still imprisoned on Nauru. The government keeps saying they're not in prison, that they, that they closed the camp, but it's surrounded by thousands of kilometres of water and they're not allowed to leave. It's an open-air prison. There are in Australia today still tens of thousands uh, of refugees on temporary visas, on bridging visas, visas. Some of them have no, most of them have no work rights. Some of them will never be allowed to bring their family out here and have still a million miles from ever dreaming of getting permanency. There are deportations happening that we can't keep track of. We don't know how many people are being torn out of their homes and scurried away at night. Sometimes we hear about it, sometimes we try to stop, it about, stop them, sometimes we make a bit of a fuss and get some media and we very rarely stop it, but we try. The, 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 honest, the reality is that brutality and cynical racism have been utterly normalised. Scott Morrison, you'll remember, you'll remember, recently reopened the Christmas Island concentration camp. For just a few weeks the place was open and then on budget night they closed it again without a single refugee having been transferred there. Now much has been made of the $185 million that that cost, and that's a fair enough point. I mean, these are the people who always run around saying there's no money for pensions, no money for the unemployed, no money for schools and hospitals, etc. And they find $185 million for this weird exercise. But the sickest part of it is not the money. We know that. The sickest part of this whole thing was that that entire exercise was actually about further demoralising refugee supporters, about further trying to demonise and vilify refugees themselves. This was the government engaging in some kind of grotesque, muscle-flexing anti-refugee exercise, and that's the sickest part of it. And it fits a very familiar pattern. Three times in the last year, Morrison government ministers have described refugees as rapists, murderers and pedophiles. And this outrageous slander is all the more disgusting in light of the avalanche of violence that is perpetrated in those camps against refugees. Uh, you know, it's hard to keep track of it all, but it's, of course, at its pinnacle. We're talking about things like the beating to death of Reza Barati on Manus Island by detention centre guards in 2014. These lies, this fear-mongering, these relentless attacks on the very character of refugees, this is the politics that fuels the far right. This is the politics that bred the Christchurch, Christchurch fascist killer. And the attacks on refugees and all of this disgusting racist politics, as so many people have pointed out, is of course bipartisan. The only difference between the Labor Party and the Liberal Party on this question uh, is that the Labor Party says they'll scrap temporary protection visas. Now that's on one hand not nothing, but it's also kind of nothing. It's a, it's a very tricky sleight of hand. Firstly, because the overwhelming majority of asylum seekers who have arrived by boat but who are not yet permanent, and there are tens of, tens of thousands of them, the majority of them are currently on bridging visa E, not temporary protection visa. It's about 16,000 as, as against 8,000. And secondly, and this is the most important point, 
all those people on whatever sort of visa they're on are already here. They arrived before Kevin Rudd reopened Manus Island. They arrived before Tony Abbott shut off uh, the borders to boat people in, in there entirely, uh, in its entirety. So abolishing temporary protection visas means nothing if you simultaneously maintain an ironclad policy of turning back boats and offshore concentration camps. Temp you know, abolishing temporary protection visas offers nothing to Beirut. Both parties agree on the basic fundamental principle that refugees who arrive unauthorised by boat will never be allowed into Australia. And even when the moment was presented to make a bit of a change, the Labor Party proved it had no interest in doing so. When they had the chance to push through the original Medivac, Medivac bill, and in doing so they would have won a decisive victory over Morrison as well, uh, they utterly capitulated. It was the ALP who watered down the bill and allowed the Immigration Department to retain powers to overrule doctors and medical professionals. That's why the Medivac bill has only, you know, when Beirut said only two people have been transferred, that's thanks to the ALP. This is actually fewer people than were transferred under the old kind of ad hoc system of just fighting this shit out in court one by one. That was, sending more, that was winning, you know, getting more people here than the bloody Medivac bill. The ALP are appalling on all of these fronts. Their policy on refugees has actually gotten worse since they were last in office. And when they were not in But since then, just one example uh, of the, uh, and that's with the utter, you know, the cravenness, thanks to the cravenness of the National Conference in 2016. That's still their policy. In all likelihood, this is, the, this is the bloody motley bunch that are going to make up the next government, be a Labor government. And this won't be a government that will free the refugees. This won't be a government that will welcome the boats. This won't be a government uh, that will even begin to unwind the damage of 30 years of anti-refugee racism. We need to build another alternative, a different, you know, that's built around different politics. A politics that makes no compromises on these issues and that doesn't foster illusions in the ALP. This is the sort of politics that says, you know, when we demand close the camps and bring them here, we don't mean, well, we mean close all the camps, not just the offshore ones. We mean close the camp in Broadmeadows, which is only half an hour from here. For example, when we say bring them here, we don't mean bring them here and lock them away in Broadmeadows or Villawood or, Darwin, or the Darwin concentration camps. We mean bring them here into our communities, bring them here into our schools, bring them here into our workplaces, bring them here into our hospitals, bring them here to share our lives, to let us start giving them the assistance they need. We demand this. We demand it as healthcare workers and educators who actually want to help, but we demand it as people who might work in all sorts of industries. We know the two refugees personally who were, who were injured and hospitalised in that uh, fire factory, the two workers who were hospitalised in the fire factory in Campbellfield, and they're two refugees. And it's not a coincidence. You know, one of the other outcomes of this anti-refugee racism is that they often end up being shunted into shitty, dangerous jobs like that where you're likely to get your fucking face blown off by poisoned barrels of, you know. And it's a credit to these workers and their colleagues and, and their union that, they, that even in the face of all of that, they were trying to organise to improve their lives. And again, it's the bloody least we could do to stand beside them in, in, in that project. And finally, we have to build around politics that puts a priority on forging struggle in the streets, not just in the courtrooms. And that's not just because we're in favour of protest for the sake of protest, but because the courts themselves have proven themselves utterly unable to, do, to change these things. 
When it comes to refugees, the High Court has ruled in favour of the government far more times than they've ruled in favour of refugees themselves. This includes a notorious High Court ruling in 2004 that, uh, that allowed, you know, made it legal for the Australian government to lock up refugees indefinitely without charge until the day they die. That is the law of the High Court of Australia. So when we say we need to prioritise building struggle in the streets and a different sort of politics, uh, that comes really from a perfectly sensible and evidence-based assessment uh, of Australian history. Only our own collective actions can bring change, and it's always been this way. Like, we don't resile from that, we're not scared of that, in fact we relish it, because it's us who carry in our hearts and in our hands a whole new world, and all we have to do, our task, is to tear down the walls and start building it. That's it. Yeah, welcome back. Yeah. Uh, you're on Sol Solidarity Breakfast. Um, <laughs> I've done so many shows this week, I'm forgetting which one I'm on. Sorry. Um, yes, uh, that was Liam Ward um, at the Marxism conference. Um, he also spoke at an event that I went to this week on Wednesday at uh, outside um, the State Library, which was... Um, a call to end the occupation of the Tamil homelands. So, uh, and it was a protest to mark the 10 years yep. since Tamil genocide. Yes, and that's actually, <clears throat> excuse me, that's actually today, the 10 years. Um, okay. Yeah, but uh, there's another event happening today in Dandenong. Um, yeah, so I went along and the turnout was really good, um, but also at the same time... Uh, this week, uh, people may be aware that um, there's a couple, a Tamil couple, uh, Priya and Nades, from, um, who had been living in Biloela in Queensland, and uh, they just received this week a notice that uh, their, I don't know what level of court it was, but it was like either high court. I think or, it's the high court. Yeah, high court. Their high court um, petition, and also it's mm. not just them, it's their Australian born children. Yes. Which yep. is a. a twist in the tail isn't it yes so they have uh their petition was rejected so now they're still in detention but there's imminent uh threat of deportation so we were also uh protesting against that um and talking about how the ongoing occupation it means that it's dangerous for them to be returned um but yeah you, you got to speak to some people yes yeah um but the piece that I, I wanted to play, you can hear um, some speeches later today if you listen to Tamil Manifest um, at one o'clock. You can hear some of the other speeches. But um, I wanted to also just play now. Um, uh, yeah, when I talked to a couple of uh, Tamil people who are from Tamil Nadu um, about uh, why they were there and um, solidarity amongst the Tamil people. அனைவருக்கும் வணக்கம் மே பதினெட்டு அல்லது முள்ளிவாய்க்கால் என்பது நம்மை விட்டு சென்ற நம் இனத்தின் சொந்தங்களை நினைவுபடுத்தும் நிகழ்வு மட்டுமல்ல ஐம்பதாயிரம் வருடங்கள் பழமை வாய்ந்த உலகின் முதல் தோன்றிய மொழியின் உள்ள கிடைக்கும் நாகரிகம் பண்பாட்டை கற்றுக்கொடுத்த ஒரு இனத்தின் நியாயமான உரிமையை வல்லாதிக்க சக்தியுடன் சேர்ந்து வேறோடு 
So earlier you were you did your speech in Tamil. Um, can you tell us a bit uh, what you were talking about? Oh, okay. So I was actually pretty much asking and requesting uh, Sri Lankan government to take the military people outside from the people where the people are actually living there. So um, it's been nearly 10 years and I can see the struggle that people have gone through. So I think it's the right time for them to take them out. So you're calling for an end to the military occupation? Yes, yes. It's been 10 years and I think all the Tamil people have gone through all the pain and struggles in their life and I think we have to end that. All the children and the people should be able to live actively and freely in a place in their own homeland. So I think it's a human rights. So I think all the people should be able to live democratically. And are you from uh, a Tamil organisation in Melbourne? Yes, yes, I am uh, from a Tamil organisation uh, from Victoria. So it's called as Nam Tamil Australia. So it's a Victorian organisation and I'm the coordinator for that. So I have my own team and we are uh, just coming outside. And we are, our one of main goal is to unite all the Tamils in uh, Victoria and in Australia. Uh, unite them to do what? So as a, a Tamil people, unitedly, uh, we want to make sure all the Tamils, whoever is living in whichever part of the world are coming together to take care of each other um, whenever they are in a trouble or in a struggle to look after each other. Because I'm from India, from Tamil Nadu, so I can see it's the same Tamil people from uh, Elam and from Sri Lanka. So I want to help those people from there. So how long has this organisation been going for? Uh, this organization is a very early stage, so probably just for four or five months. Yeah, but uh, this is the first time we are coming publicly outside. And so, yeah, we'll be doing all this work. Yeah. And how did you come together? Like, what made this happen now? Okay, so uh, in our organization, we have lots of people. Uh, so there's many members who are interested to join uh, and because this is a global uh, organization because there is same organization in uh, different parts of the world so all the Tamils are joining together uh, without saying these people are from Sri Lanka or there's people from uh, Tamil Nadu or anything so we are coming together uh, uniting and we are going to take our uh, all our histories and everything like you know it's, it could be art and craft or um, you know trading and everything so they all have been buried so we want to bring them back outside and expose to the world the goodness of us and you know live happily yeah so are you from the same organization yes I'm also part of Nam Tamil Australia and I think I'm the secretary of that organization yes so the group in Australia is very young but the group back in Tamil Nadu India has been going for quite some time actually years uh, 10 15 plus years but the actual movement itself is 30 40 years old and I think it originated this whole thing originated back in Sri Lanka but because of the popularity that it gained it gained popularity not from the just from the Sri Lankan Tamils, but also from the Indian Tamils, Malaysian Tamils, and Tamils everywhere. And coming from the Indian Tamil myself and studied in RMIT, and I got attracted to it when I was 16. 
So I've been doing it for the last 12 years and uh, when uh, Vasanthi, you know, invited me to join it, I was the first hand, one to put my hand up and said, yep, I'll join it. So that's my journey in this. But I've been always watching what's happening both on the Indian side of things, the sufferings and uh, what could have been better both on the Indian for the Indian Tamils and also for the Sri Lankan Tamils and pretty much anyone as a matter of fact you know any human who is going through sufferings and who could have had a better life you know I think it's at, at the least you should stand there and support and whatever moral support because that, I think that will give them a boost so I think that's there's a few things why I am part of this when I came here in 2007 that's when I got the face-to-face -face interactions with a lot of Sri Lankan Tamils who were my uni mates and uh, you know people you see on the streets restaurants and back then because I was a new kid on the block I was just going and talking to anyone who could speak Tamil because yes. you know that's my <laughs> native language so yeah, I yeah. thought you know I it was easy for me to connect with anyone Tamil so I didn't see whether it was from Sri Lanka or Singapore or Malaysia or India you know so our even the first gen uh, or the second gen Tamils locally you know so yeah so and it kept going for the last 12 years to a point now where I'm among them now supporting each other's courses and yeah awesome thanks yeah so that's uh, some of the uh, Tamil people that were that are from an organization called Nam Tamilar um, yeah, and they are trying to get all the Tamil people to come together in solidarity, um, yeah, around what's happening in Sri Lanka. Yeah. Well, good report. And now, uh, reminding listeners, they're on 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast, and it's uh, the 18th, which is a momentous day because it's the election day. And uh, in the studio, we've got a representative from Fair Go for Pensioners, Joe Montero. And uh, Joe, what are some of the issues for pensioners, for, for your people? Well, as far as, uh, you know, there's a connection with the today's election uh, because we do have uh, a log of claims. Now, we're concerned not only with, with age pensions, we're concerned with people on other benefits and also the people who are underemployed. Uh, and we actually put to politicians and try to get their response, try to get uh, meetings with them on some of the key issues. Uh, for instance, you know, we need more money for benefits. People need... They're really falling and further and further down and really need a substantial increase. So we, we've pushed, you know, the age pension, for instance, should go up substantially. We're also arguing that what new is the start age, should go uh, up by 100 a week. Yeah, but the, you know, uh, the age pension, what is that? What's that a week? Well, it's, it is it is more, uh, you know, it, it's exactly, we're, we're talking about $500 a week, roughly right. talking, okay. with... With additions. So what you're saying is that it's about twice as much as New Starter Week. It is. It is. So wow. th th that is luxury, and that's why we're also pushing New Start as a really important thing because people. No, it really, really gives you an insight position. into how um, New Start people yeah. are treated. Well, if, if I mean, if, if yeah. the age pension's not enough for people who are on the age pension, it is uh, not. at that rate compared to New Start, it's quite extraordinary. Well. Uh, you know, the pensions are 27.7% at the moment of the average male wage. 
So it's pretty low. We're talking about a third of a normal wage. Mm. Okay. So you know, new and, start uh, is half that. Yeah, mm. and and you and it's of course directly related to the pressure on wages because uh, workers uh, it gives uh, the uh, boss class the uh, field day because uh, the wages are low, very low, at, but in comparison to uh, what pensions are, uh, you know, uh, it's enough to scare a worker. It is. Uh, I mean, one of the other things for older people we're pushing is return the retirement age to 65. I mean, people have put in over a lifetime of work. They've done enough and actually deserve support. And we're saying this shouldn't be looked at as charity. It is a right that people have. People who have worked for their lives have a right to be respected and rewarded for it, but also... Uh, other people who don't have work, who don't have sufficient work, have a right to work, and uh, that should be regarded as a right, not a benefit. It's interesting because if you go back to historically, which I've been doing because I've been to a variety of uh, talks, uh, in 1941 they uh, they introduced a tax, which most Australians, believe it or not, didn't get taxed before 1941 and they were creating a tax because they were worried about the war effort. But it was in order to make it palatable, it was to offer people a, basically a social security system and that's where it become, it comes yes. from. It comes from this notion that Australia's population understood, the majority of workers understood that there wasn't enough care for the elderly. There wasn't enough care for... I mean, people understood hunger. They understood having no shelter. They understood what it was like to be infirmed. And that was why people were prepared to pay taxes. And now our system is grubbing it back, isn't it? That's right. Uh, Now, in... Uh, in relation to the election, uh, Fairgo for Pensioners did put out a statement uh, about where, as a group, as a, as a coalition, we 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 are at, and uh, this is response in the response to the response we have to what well, is basically a log of claims that we presented to politicians. Uh, we got stuffle response from the LNP, and uh, and we. We presented an attitude that uh, what they're doing really is not in our interests at all and uh, we should give them no support. Uh, we also spoke, and we did get to speak to some of the Labor Party people and some of the Greens, and we came out with a position uh, is that they are offering significantly more. It may not be perfect, uh, particularly on New Start, uh, but... Uh, we are recommending uh, today that people put the. Well, I don't LNP think we should actually give people recommendations around their vote because we're. I in know that that that's what fear go for pensioners on a statement as a as an alliance. Oh, okay, okay. That that was stated. what you discovered when you did your investigation. Uh, we did, we did. Said, uh, so that was basically uh, the attitude there. But uh, we're also uh, very aware that we need to be looking past today, past the federal election, and really what's really important is what comes after because words are easy, but uh, we need to see the actions as well. 
What about um, the uh, push towards uh, automation or um, a, a lot of your members concerned around the issue of uh, benefits, etc., being uh, automated? And uh, I mean, I know that your fair go for pension is, is not just uh, for older people. In fact, it's for all people who um, receive benefits. Uh, but some of your members are older. Do you think it it falls more heavily on older people? Uh, look, this is an issue that keeps on coming up. Uh, and certainly since uh, there were some reports of the intention to actually automate basically the government sector uh, as Centrelink has been going. And the experience that people are having from day to day is that it's pretty hopeless trying to get anything done. Through it, uh, I mean, you keep on getting knocked back. Everybody's heard about how long you're waiting on the telephone, the inability to actually talk to someone that is putting people, a lot of people, in hardship, in extreme hardship in some cases. So there is a lot of concern about that and we're looking towards uh, arguing and promoting the idea that we need we need uh, a system which actually respects people, treats them fairly and talks about and tries to promote greater equality in our society. Also, I think on the automation thing, like with MyGov and everything, they're trying to push people to do everything online and often um, older people haven't got the knowledge about how to like um, navigate the internet or like Wi-Fi issues or whatever and that that creates another barrier for people to access And too often they actually get so frustrated they give up yeah they give up and then mm. they fall in a hole and uh, yep. uh, and are in a really bad place yeah it's really uncool yeah, yeah yeah it's pretty poor uh the other thing about that is uh even if you are au fait with the methodology the mm. uh, uh automation what's so fantastic or underwhelming about automation is the lack of accountability yeah because if it doesn't work, what do you do? Yeah, like you've ticked all the boxes, you've crossed all the T's, you've dotted all the I's, yeah. and it fails to actually accomplish what it's supposed to do. And yeah. then, this is the one that I love, they give you a phone number to ring that nobody ever answers. Yes. Does it feel like Fran- uh, K- Kafka has come yeah, to yeah. town? And I think that <laughs> the issue on that point is that the responsibility for it not working or the compliance kind of aspect of it means that the responsibility is put back on the person who's supposed to be like ticking all the boxes. So then even though it's not your fault, it's out of your control that, you know, their um, like the website wasn't working or something. It's That's still right. your fault for not complying so you get your, you know, uh, payment stopped or whatever. Like because you get penalised. Yeah. Because it's automated. Yes, yeah. And yep. computers don't lie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is that. I mean, also because the system is in one spot, mm. it is subject to breakdowns and they yes. happen fairly often and then the whole system falls over. Well, yeah. that's right. And I mean, you, you have sympathy for their desire to uh, move with the times because it's all about being modern and all the rest efficient of it. Efficient. And efficient. And, money and you can saving. see the, uh, you know, how they'd see yeah. that this yeah. would be the case. Yeah. 
However, there's no fallback position at all. Yeah. No, there there isn't, uh, and uh, it, it's also, I mean, a big issue is the privatisation of yes. services. Yes. Where outfits are brought in and they're actually paid commission on how many they drop off the list. Yeah. So. The pressure is there is not to get much service at all yes. uh, and to actually blame the person who's calling so they can tick that number off, yeah. get them off the list and get the commission. Uh, so that's a pretty bad thing. Now, uh, out of the experience of recent years, one discussion, point of discussion that's emerged is around that term welfare and there's an argument whether we should continue to use it or not based on whether we should be caring about people as a priority or we should be shifting towards a fundamental human right that should apply to everyone. Now, I've mentioned that because I, I want to mention today uh, we have Fair Go for Pensions. We've got a conference coming up in July, 10th of July, uh, out at Coburg. And we're going to discuss this issue. We're going to discuss what is a, wrong with Australia's not only welfare system, but what is termed the democratic system in Australia. What is wrong with it? You know, why have services declined? Why is there a lack of political leadership? But I think most importantly, we want to start a discussion as widely as possible. Is right, we've got these problems. The point is, what are we going to do about it? Let's talk about stepping further than going cap in hand and asking for things. All right, we can ask for things, but we need to start thinking about taking the responsibility of moving things on. So what you're saying is uh, uh, actually activating people's democratic position, that individuals actually work together to get a result. Now, um, there was a really fantastic uh, quote about uh, uh, from James Connolly, the Irish freedom fighter, who expressed uh, what democracy as we have it now is, which is that the uh, working class are give, and others are given the opportunity from a bunch of different people to choose who's going to be their overlords, which is what? I mean, he, he says it in a more succinct manner, but um, that's what he was saying. But what you're, you're putting forward is that actually people need to take their power uh, and uh, invest in democracy so that they can, like the sea, cause a tide in a particular direction. That's it. And, and, and doing that means more than having a discussion. It means to organise... Uh, in a way that you build a movement that actually makes things happen. Yes, that's right. Um, uh, And that's, you know, like it's not necessarily a uh, direct assault on the structures that already exist. It's a gentle undermining of the sands of the foundation, really, isn't it? Well, uh, More positive. I suppose you could look at it. And I'll put the, the positive slant is... I think it's what you said before, people activating the power that they really have in their hands collectively if they know it. Mm. Yeah. So so this um, 
uh, conference, uh, which is on July the 8th? 10th. Uh, 10th, 10th. 10th. July yeah, the 10th. Wednesday. I, I, it's at the uh, Greek, Coburg Greek Orthodox Church. Now, people do have to register for it because there are only 100 places. Is a fill the place, but it's also fully catered. In other words, there'll be lunch provided uh, at no cost. Get in early. Oh, I know. Get so in you early. need to get in early, and people <laughs> need to go to the uh, to the website. Uh, That's okay. Get we're, in t- we've get in actually, touch we've actually got page. a. We've got uh, we're, we're right on the money here. Yeah, three yeah. CR, uh, and on well, solidarity breakfast, <laughs> we've actually got a, a, a community announcement. Uh, yeah. For this event, because we back this event yeah. too. Yeah, so uh, we want to, and it's not just to go there and get a free feed, but it's no, about, no, you have well, to actually contribute. It's as well. about participating. Your payment is, but it's also about putting in ideas. Yeah, summing up what the situation is, but mostly important, what are we going to do about it? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. A lot of work has been done uh, discussing and looking at the history of uh, what's going on. But this is a watershed moment, isn't it? Because uh, with this push for artificial intelligence to take over uh, the running of a whole range of government services and the rather startling statistic that came out of the Senate uh, inquiry into robo-debt the uh, that about around two thousand people have committed suicide as a result of receiving automatic letters of debt from Robo from Centrelink. Yeah, from Centrelink. that was look. I That's had, a startling. I, I, I had something to do with revealing that. I must admit, and mm. the trouble because uh, I had a case myself. Uh, I was. So it's not only that, uh, and uh, and uh, I was actually uh, being treated for cancer uh, pretty heavily, and I was told uh, I was trying to go into and uh, get some support from Centrelink, and at that time I was told I didn't qualify because I wasn't properly dying. I was not disabled. You weren't yeah. properly dying, yeah. uh, and that was it. And I said it was uh, it was that uh, I didn't meet their criteria in the chart they've mm. got. And third, uh, I wasn't having sufficient specialist treatment. But I said, how much more specialist do you want to get? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a patient at the cancer centre. Yeah, right. So, uh, so that was it. And there's a lot of people in that, elderly people in particular, younger people who have lost everything uh, because of robo-debt, but even before that, mm. because of the way they've been treated and they've lost hope, they've lost any point. And I personally received a number of messages from a range of people who were contemplating suicide oh, that's so terrible. at the time and, uh, and, and created a lot of flack. I actually uh, put out a story in social media that, and this is the reaction it caused, that actually got in two days uh, 125,000 responses. Mm. Now, it's not surprising that... Four days after that, uh, that was on a Monday, the story started to come out in the mainstream mm. media. Uh, no, so so that, that was it. Uh, well, that, that was time. That, that went out at the time. Uh, that was in 2016 uh, during the beginnings of the election campaign there to have a bit more impact. But, uh, but it's real. I mean, that's the bottom line. And, and I think that... Uh, 
what a bunch of people did to uncover some of that stuff, really brought into the open what's been going on for some time. Can I just, um, as we're finishing up, uh, like who, if anybody, like who's going to be held accountable for any of that? It just seems kind of like we, yeah, they had the Senate inquiry, but. There's, I know. Uh, like it's they're extraordinary. Just, they're just going to kind of blame it on the robo, whatever. What, whoever yeah. robo is. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know. Who's, who I'll can, tell you what. I think yeah. that's why, why they do it. That What they're doing is uh, washing their hands. Uh, they're separating themselves from the moral dilemma yeah. that they're creating uh, and making it okay. Uh, so service deliverers become bureaucratic units. Uh, mm. And so, therefore, they can't be besmirched by the terrible outcomes. But anyway, yeah. Joe. Can I just mention mm. quickly, I mean, or often advise people, because I did it and it actually worked eventually, uh, is if you're really having a problem, you can't get through the system, write a letter, write your case down uh very detailed. clearly yeah. and detailed and send it directly to the minister's office in Canberra and ring up and tell them that, right, this is what's going on. I mm. want it fixed because I know some other people might want to hear about it. I'll give you a week to do it and check it up. And what will often happen is that I want to get the blame. Mm. That's the minister. The minister will contact the head of uh, human services and it'll go down the line and the and if there's likely to be a reaction and they're worried about it everyone this is the way they operate they blame the person below them and it sort yeah. of goes down the line and this is why you don't want to outsource your government services yeah. because there's no accountability yes. once it falls into the hands of the private operator. Anyway, that we've got to finish there. Thank you very much for coming yeah, in, thanks, Joe. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Yep. That was great. Any time. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when it looks like good news despite what looked like sad. Oh, how sad, sad news. With no response to my request last week, if anyone could come up with a third possibility other than caring business class party big supremo scuttle them more lash son or socialist party supremo and would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten ambition and their lots after tonight. But then the good news from an unlikely source. No less an authority than the caring business class election spokesperson Simon Boringman who told us we face a stark choice. So Simon Simon has obviously uncovered a third possibility. What a relief. To scuttle them and little Billy's credit, didn't the campaign hit dizzy heights at the weekend? I, I gained new respect for scuttle them when I discovered he is a mother's son, a wife's husband and two daughters' father. What a man. That seemed to be the highlight of his campaign launch and certainly a guaranteed vote winner. Although given it was the launch, apparently what he's been doing ever since slipping the knife into former Big Supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull's back, and especially for the past three or four weeks, was not campaigning. Little Billy got the jump. He started campaigning a week earlier. 
As a photo of him hugging his dear little family said, Scuttle then shared an emotional moment. I'm sure the dear little families he's kept locked up for years and intends never not to lock up would have shared his emotion and realised how they've misjudged him. He loves dear little families, they would have chorused. Despite Scuttledem and Little Billy having shared the same compassionate lock em up for life policy, Little Billy also got the jump on Scuttledem in introducing a touch of even more humanity to no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people policy for those on Manus Island. If they don't like where they are, he would happily and compassionately offer to transfer them to some other place in Papua New Guinea. Doesn't that highlight the stark choice about which Simon Boringham was talking? And doesn't it show how we've got over regarding PNG as a colony? Someday, little Billy accused Scuttledem of lacking vision, uh, which means you do have vision, little Billy. Certainly an exciting vision. Uh, uh, which is, I have a vision of living in the lodge and living at Kirribilli. Little Billy at Kirribilli. <laughs> yes, very good, very good. But I was thinking more, though, of a vision for the country. Uh, I just told you. Then again, Scuttle then came up with a vision that first home buyers would be able to enjoy their first home thanks to a 500 million government scheme. Uh, Scuttle then noticed the banks have reacted to Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Commission criticism that they were lending to people while rorting their capacity to repay. And that's why the government will accept the risk. What, to punish the banks for years of ripping off? Well, ripping off over and above normal ripping off. That's why the banks need to be taught a lesson. Uh, yes, I can only imagine how shattered they'll be that we, the public, are taking the risks and they're left with nothing more than the profits. They're just getting what they deserve. Uh, 500 million for private housing. I imagine there's lots more for public housing given the massive, much greater need. We do not believe in socialism, which only leads to even greater need. Which, as is as dishonest a denial of his intentions as little Billy's surreptitious threat to capitalism, exposed by Lord Rupert's usual suspect bolt-through-the-head columnist who declared Scuttlebem's policy proved we now live in a socialist society. Capitalism is dead. Which, apart from anything else, says heaps about the usual suspect's intelligence, or more correctly, total lack of. If only it were as simple as an arch-conservative refugee hater helping hand profits to the banks. Although, on the other hand, bulk through the head's concern might be well-placed, for little Billy immediately came out and said he too would adopt the same socialist policy. Never one to miss an opportunity, the bank's response is they'll have to raise interest rates to offset the risk the government is taking. Asked whether he still believes homosexuality and same-sex marriage are grievous sins bringing tears to the eyes of the dear baby Jesus, Scuttle then said, I don't mix my religion with politics. And we reckon that's the only thing on which those refugees he hates would agree with him, although just maybe that policy doesn't conflict with his religion. Hoping to give a fillip to the socialist campaign, former big supremo, our great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawk himself, decided to die.
And I think his legacy has been expressed over the years by the caring business class, which continually pleads with the Socialist Party to be like Nuclear Hawks government, the architect of neoliberal economics, and his biggest gift to his caring business class cronies, the smashing of the, of the undermining of the trade union movement, the massive decline in union membership, expressed beautifully by another former big supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses, that Nuke was... More caring business class than socialist. More caring business class than socialist. Gee, we never noticed that. And the little bald-headed bloke who used to be Big Supremo back in those dark ages said Nuclear Hawk's economic reforms were able to be achieved so easily because they had the full support of the caring business class party. Uh, they really did. He was the best Socialist Party Big Supremo by far. He really was. And how can we question a Socialist credentials with such glowing tributes from that lot? Yesterday morning on the Radio National Bricky Show, Fran Kelly kept uh, calling him great, which I must say grated on me. Let's hope his big business and CIA and other questionable mates appreciated his role. Speaking of caring employers, caring, see poor McDonald's may owe millions to workers after paying subaward rates and no penalty rates for years after signing a deal with that non-evil union, the Shopping the Workers Union. And the other usual suspect big retailers say their wages bills will increase by millions because they now have to pay penalty rates and possibly even higher penalty rates if the socialists win. Because up to now they had an agreement with the Shopping the Workers Union that they not pay penalty rates at all in return for a bit extra in the pay packet. But given they're complaining paying penalty rates will cost them millions and they'll have to find ways of saving those millions, does this mean, could, could it possibly mean the caring employer union deal cost the workers millions? That it was a good deal for the caring employers and a not so good deal for the workers? Ah, thank goodness we've got some non-evil unions who understand the delicate flower that is the economy. On which, back in Fitzroy, the sorry cops, paramilitary kill with a little finger cops, raided a shop stroke residence, the wrong shop stroke residence, and arrested a suspect who wasn't the suspect, the wrong bloke, who ended up in hospital with serious injuries. But he soon felt a lot better when the coppers apologised and admitted their mistake. Oh, sorry, sorry, we, we bashed the wrong bloke. We sought a comment from our very own week that was police spokesperson Senior Sergeant Bernie O'Pig. Like you know, like, like you know, like you know. Thank you, Senior Sergeant O'Pig, lucid as ever. The secretary of the radical, radical militant union, another non-evil union, defended his members and said they had done nothing wrong and made a lawful arrest. So obviously sending suspects to hospital is doing nothing wrong. In fact, to use their terms, their modus operandi, and arresting an innocent bloke by mistake is a lawful arrest. Well, he, the secretary, is an ex-copper, which would explain his logic and brain power. Mentioned last week that trained killer recruitment ad aimed at women with the slogan, Do what you love, pointing out they omitted, kill people. Well, 
there's this ad running with a young woman and a young man in boring civilian life envisaging making a difference as they dream of the fun, fun, fun of life. Bashing, framing, tasering, spraying with chemicals, shooting, sharpening the boots, plus all the deep and meaningful conversations with your co-workers. All the advantages of making a difference. Imagine the conversations in the war room, which is any room they're in, at the White House as Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor, his secretary for US of World State Mike Pompeo or else, and his trained killer advisor John Belt up on discuss a bit of invasion, having uncovered this credible evidence of evil, evil Iran plotting to invade the US of and the whole world, uh, which is the same thing, but which they can't tell us, presumably for security reasons and surely as credible as the proof former secretary for train killing colon as in full of shit pal to the profiteers produced at the UN of the US of the UN of the world to expose evil Iraq brimming with weapons of mass destruction nuclear warheads and an army ready to invade the world now as US of train killer ships aircraft carriers patrol off the coast of Iran in US of the world waters how silly how stupid how naive of evil evil iran and what a coincidence just as the us of train killer arsenal arrives evil iran attacks oil tankers and sends uh, sends um drones to bomb good good lover of liberty freedom and democracy saudi just as giving the good old US of an excuse to send in the Marines to liberate yet another nation. And I hope no one thinks for one moment they, the US of, might have done it themselves. After all, evil Iran is guilty of sticking by an agreement. And the commander-in-chief knows that in caring business, you can't trust anyone who sticks to an agreement. Oh. Finally, all we can do is enjoy our only election night enjoyment, watching the loser lose. Good morning. This is Ari Lecke. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle. Go with the fellas, whatever the weather. We got drinks with umbrellas. You got time to wine, keep them down in the cellar. We got time to shine, do that shit at Coachella. Throwing brunches and lunches, lunches and crunches. Living life in abundance, no really worry about nothing. Then I pull up, hop out, wave at that cop now. Stop sign, ran that, oh that fine, that's not out. And hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. Miracle. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, my life is incredible. 
opaque, man it's okay to be opaque, man it's okay to be opaque, man it's okay to be opaque. You got your girl a new handbag, I'm living like I got my land back. I got them tin tams and bintangs. Chewies and skip pants, very vocal as my girl will tell them all my big plans on how we head to Bali smoking Cuban cigars and we fuck up the party like acoustic guitars. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. Man, hush what they say now. I just pay my way out. I just pay my way out. This is a miracle. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, Rebecca, and in the studio we've got Marcus. Now, Marcus, Yay. you have got a story for us. Ah, uh, yeah, on the line this morning, uh, we're going to be talking about the life confronting our workers in the market research and call centre industry. So in Melbourne, yeah, there's a bunch of uh, young uh, but very active union delegates and activists uh, taking on the bosses in the call centre industry and one of those delegates uh, joins us this morning on the line. Welcome to the program, Liz. Hi. <laughs> thanks yeah. for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on the program uh, this morning. So like I said, yeah, uh, we're going to be looking at the life-confronting call centre workers in Melbourne. And uh, mm-hmm. the NUW members have been very active in the workplace in recent times. And it started with a dispute last year. Uh, do you want to tell the listeners about Yeah. That? So one of the things with call centre work is that... Um, uh, there's a lot of kind of time in between talking to people on the phone because you're waiting for them to pick up. And one of those things uh, that makes us feel, feel like humans uh, in our workplace is actually reading. Um, so uh, lots of us will study uh, in between calls and things like that. Um, and uh, last year we had a, uh, well, we had a worker, uh, our workmate, was asked to go home and then uh, all of her shifts were cancelled and she was basically sacked for reading at her desk. Um, and all of us came together and we organised a mass meeting um, in the middle of our shift and about like 70 to 80 people uh, walked off for about 25 minutes and she immediately got a job back and we reinstated our right to read. One, one of the uh, things that... G'day, Liz, this is Annie. Uh, yeah. One of the things that's interesting about a call centre person's job is that uh, everybody gets the impression that there's not much security and you just said that uh, a person could just not get their shifts. That's right. Mm. So it's pretty unusual, isn't it, for... Uh, a group of people to feel in this precarious work, uh, it's, it feel that they can actually work together to actually get a proper result, a pushback. So how did you actually get that to happen? You must be great yeah. fire builders. Um, yeah, so um, we started off with really small campaigns around our workplace, basically to show people, like, here's what a union does and what it is. Um, I think most people nowadays, uh, young people, don't really actually know what unions do, um, and they actually just have no, not much idea at all. Um, so we started off with tiny campaigns, uh, for example, just asking for things like soy milk in our kitchen um, <laughs> for people who had, like, dietary uh, requirements or whatever. Um, so little campaigns like that, snacking at our desk, um, it helped to build up the union uh, and the sense of like, well, here's like a concrete improvement in our workplace that you can see that the unions won. 
Um, and and yeah. that you're people, not just Sorry. drones. Yeah, that, that you're exactly. not just people, uh, drones, you're yeah. actually people, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, soy milk was actually, it seems like such a tiny issue, um, but it was really great because people who were lactose intolerant or were vegan or whatever reason um, were just like, yeah, actually, I deserve to be able to enjoy the refreshments provided to us in the kitchen. So yeah, it was really great. Yeah. And to win the uh, reading dispute, um, yeah, you use the time-honoured method of uh, basically walking off the job, stopping the uh, flow of (laughs) profits to the boss. Yeah, it was uh, incredible. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Um, So we had this mass meeting just in like one of the empty rooms in our office and uh, there was just lines of people coming in and um, the entire room was full and everyone, the significant thing about that was everyone felt like it could have been them and it was this real sense mm. of like well if they're gonna sack me again well then sack me too like um and it was just incredible i've never experienced anything like that in my life um yeah it, the door couldn't shut <laughs> for the room um yeah, yeah. So awesome yeah it's good to see the new generation of nuw delegates and activists um really making a stand and giving the bosses a hard time on the job yeah, the NUW, that was uh, my union. I was a delegate for 10 years, so it's good to see wow. young people stepping up to the plate and uh, and really making a go of it. So the, um, the yeah. particular call centre leads the way in terms of uh, union strength in the industry. Um, can you tell us what the union members have achieved in the workplace and across the industry? Yeah, so um, we've uh, kind of established solidarity photos as like a thing in our in our industry. So lots of different call centres will do solidarity photos for different causes. So because we believe that unions should take up political and social issues um, because they affect workers. Um, so things like we do solidarity photos for refugees and other call centres have started to do them too. Uh, we do them against racism, things like that. Um, we've also just, um, there was just one time, so we do like uh, a poll, um, and there was one time a bunch of people just thought, felt like the quest, a question in the, in the poll was, uh, a bit racist, um, and they all just raised their hands and they were like, we're not going to do it. And it actually delayed the job for like a few hours, um, and there was no delegate on shift, <laughs> um, and like people just did that, like it's, um, quite incredible like that people would just do that um and feel and feel like they can do that together um um it's also uh reading has been a um like a bunch of different call centers have also been campaigning for their right to read um and things like that so yeah um it's been (laughs) yeah it's been quite a big splash um and it's i guess yeah it's really great what well, what one of the things that's interesting is to me is that a lot of the demands that uh, the bosses make uh I mean I I have an understanding that in a call center of this nature you have the general pool of people who do the tasks that are being put to you to do you know you get a job that has to be done uh that uh, the boss uh, has a policy of employing a pool of people that's greater than the demand so everybody's got a a relatively insecure position Mm. and then they make demands petty demands on Mm. workers to demoralize them would that be a fair description yeah yeah so um uh they do do this thing where they hire they overhire so um 
it does a number of things. So it makes everyone compete, feel like they need to compete against each other to have shifts. Um, it also creates this sense of like fear because if you do anything wrong or you step out of line or you're just not doing well on a shift, you just might not get any shifts the next week. Um, it also just creates this, um, yeah, I guess like just instability of just like, well, you know, if I, yeah, if I um, do anything wrong, well, then I could just get the sack or something like that. Um, so, one, One of the, the things that things. I found really interesting was the business about people mm. and what they wear. I mean, you work yeah. at a call centre. Nobody can see what you look like. Yeah. I was just actually going to say just on, on the topic before uh, about shifts, we actually stopped um, our workplace from hiring at the start of the year, which actually ensured that people could, you know, kind of um, expect shifts um, because... Yeah, we just said to them, if you're going to hire, tell us why you need to hire. And then we just figured out that they were overhiring for no reason. And yeah, we actually stopped them from hiring, which actually provided work for a whole bunch of our workmates, um, which is quite incredible in a casual job. Um, and yeah, also just on the topic of like clothing, um, they did try to enforce the dress code of like smart, like business casual um, dress. And it was kind of worded in this way that would definitely just disproportionately affect women in our workplace. Um, so it was quite sexist, um, and we managed to just fight back against that by everyone just basically um, signing a petition against the dress code. Because, um, yeah, you work at a call centre, you're sitting in a place, some people do like eight, 12-hour shifts, some people do just the four hours usually, but it's a long time to be in a place, um, and, you know, you don't actually see anyone anyways, so it's kind of like people should just be able to be comfortable and wear what they want to work, yeah. Yeah, all the negative effects of casualisation to keep workers in fear, to keep workers on edge, to keep workers mm. basically in line, as you said, competing against each other, waiting by the phone for a for a shift, and uh, obviously you guys are, are standing up and finding ways to fight back in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it's not a lot to ask, I think, if you expect us to do the work, like we should be able to at least expect you know, to be treated like humans that need to plan our lives and budget and, you know, like pay for rent and things like that. Like it's not much to ask, I think. <laughs> it's pretty significant what you're doing because uh, the general impression is that we now live in a majority precarious uh, position of employment, that young people are particularly being shafted, that they uh, will not get permanent positions. Uh, mm. they, they'll have real difficulty in being able to provide for themselves in the future. Uh, but what you're doing is actually showing that by working together, uh, all the old uh, rules of solidarity actually still exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, they're still there. Um, I think, you know, work has always been, um, yeah, at some kind of level of precar preca precarious, um, just all throughout history. Um, and I think, yeah, the same rules of solidarity and standing up together and collectivity um, still apply, definitely. Um, I think it's really natural for people to rebel um, uh, because, you know... Um, yeah, I think it's very natural, but it just needs to be organised. Um, and I think if you can organise it, um, you can do a lot more. <laughs> and speaking of solidarity, the call centre and market research industry is one of the few sectors that uh, remains on an industry-wide agreement. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's still a few call centres in Melbourne um, that are not 
uh, on that, uh, like, EMSRO agreement. Um, but we're working on definitely getting those places too. Um, but, yeah. So, obviously, that provides the workers with more strength on an industry-wide agreement rather than uh, being on an enterprise agreement, which basically breaks down solidarity. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it is really good, yeah. Okay, so as is the case, union delegates in the workplace and key activists are often targeted in the in the workplace, and uh, you found yourself in that position, Liz. Um, yeah, so I'm currently actually uh, in a situation where I've been suspended um, from having any shifts at the moment, um, and we have seen it in our workplace. We see it as a definite kind of attack on our union um, activism. Um, so it's kind of still uh, pending um, at the moment, but I have a meeting uh, with management uh, next week, so we'll see what they say um, after that and go from there. Um, but, yeah, basically we've been asking people to send through solidarity photos. Um, they really um, kind of improve, like boost the morale of everyone at work um, who are fighting for this. Um, people have been wearing um, stickers at work that say, where's my delegate Liz? Um so yeah, there's you know been action on the ground. We've also had like two meetings in the middle of shift um, just regarding this topic. Um, so yeah, people at work are definitely taking it up upon themselves to like fight for my job because they see it as a huge, huge attack on not just the union in our workplace but in the entire industry. Um, so yeah. And so, what's the NUW doing? That's your union. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they've been uh, pretty good. Um, they've offered. Um, support uh, in regards to like meetings and things like that. So yeah. Okay, and there's an upcoming uh, public meeting at Trades Hall to talk about the union uh, organising the call centre industry. Would you like to yeah. uh, tell the listeners about that? Yeah, sure. So it's on Wednesday and it starts at six thirty at Trades Hall. Um, yeah, uh, it's uh, a panel, so it'll be me and the other delegates from my workplace, Megan, Yasmin, and Maddie, uh, and we'll be talking about. Um, so kind of the industry and what that entails, uh, working in a call centre and then also the things that we've been able to do. And uh, we're going to be talking specifically as well about the walk-off that we did last year for our right to read. Um, yeah, you should come along. <laughs> yeah, I think all listeners should come along. I think it's going to be a great event. It's going to teach other workers yeah. on how to organise, on, on how to yeah come together and win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Thanks very much for talking to us today, Liz. That's okay. Um, oh, and another thing that we're doing is we're also organising a party um, on Saturday. So not today, but Saturday yes. coming. Yep. Um, we've actually um, created a publication for the entire industry, so the call centre industry, and it's made by call centre workers um, to read at work. And it includes all these stories of resistance across the industry. Um, so that'll be starting at 6.30 at the Curtain upstairs. Oh, the Curtain. Yeah. yeah, good on you. <laughs> yeah. It's being used for a good and proper purpose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, mate, and that's good luck. Okay, thanks so much. Thanks, Liz. Oh, that's Bye. fantastic. Uh, that's a real "Where's Wally" moment. Where's my delegate, Liz? Yeah. I love it. <laughs> You're on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, let's have a track. Yes.
hell? Yeah, we're going oh. to talk about it. You've got... Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were just uh, discussing uh, something that's going on in uh, Hume. Uh, you, you'll remember, of course, there's been these fires that have been happening out in Hume, uh, chemical fires, uh, big... Uh, Camperfeld, well, Camperfeld fire that uh, was uh, uh, an accumulation over uh, an incredible level of accumulation of ke- uh, chemicals that then went up in smoke, and uh, that was the fourth major fire of that sort in three years in that area. Anyway, uh, you would might may have noticed that on the ABC the uh, this week uh, they were talking about wage theft coming out of uh, Hume Council, which is, uh, despite some elderly cleaners uh, sending an email directly to the uh, uh, CEO. C- CEO, they were ignored. But it's over, what is it, half a million dollars they're owed? Uh, reported half a million dollars These uh, this couple is owed by um, a contract cleaning company which was engaged by the Hume City Council to clean their head office in Broadmeadows. So they have real problems noticing waste. <laughs> that seems to be a, a, problems um, with waste. a, a, pro- yeah. a problem with waste in Yeah, Hume. it seems there's a problem with fires, a problem with waste dumps, and now, yeah. uh, what do we see now? Wage theft and, yeah. Yeah, and the exploitation of basically uh, casual, labour hire casual workers. Yeah, well, they need to clean up their act, don't they? So you're on that case. We're going to follow that up uh, as uh, time passes. You're going to go to the council meeting and ask a few uh, bony questions, Marcus. Yeah, I'll be turning up to the next ordinary council meeting on June 11, I think it is, and I'll be putting the questions forward as to why this situation happened and if uh, the Hume City Council and their labour hire companies they engage in have signed up to the uh, labour hire Licensing Authority, which has recently come into force in Victoria. Yeah, it's mm. very interesting. And uh, all these threads, people using their councils and keeping an eye on something, we, we uh, it, it sort of feeds into uh, Fair Go for Pensioners uh, um, event that's coming up in July, on July the 10th, yep. uh, persuading people to actually involve themselves in their democracy Lose it, use it or lose it. Yeah. Anyway. And I just wanted to mention, because we've been talking about some pretty uh, harrowing uh, stuff today, so I wanted to mention um, that if you need to chat with someone about what you're going through, um, a lot of people are in some pretty dire situations. Um, I'll just give you the number for Lifeline. It's 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14 and the suicide callback service is 1300 659 467. That's 1300 659 467. And that's it for us. We've uh, we've been all around the place today. We followed up uh, Manus Island and what's going on there and refugees. We uh, went to the steps of state Library to the a ten year um, commemoration of the uh, end of uh, genocide, Tamil genocide, in Sri Lanka. We uh, moved on to Fair Go for Pensioners, down to this is the week that was, and we moved on to call centres and the fight back for fairness in call centre employment. Uh, that's it. We're going to co- uh, go out with a track, and uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents.
Yes, and I'll just mention that that's a pre-record today, and and next week we'll be doing a pre-record because there's some uh, oh major stuff yes, going on at, 3CR. at the studio. <laughs> yes, and don't forget, uh, yeah, radiothon's also coming up. So um, save your pennies. Yes, throw them our way. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.